And then as well, we are going to jump into the third week of a series that we started obviously a few weeks ago. And the series is called Undivided, dealing with the things that keep us from God. And we've been talking about everybody's favorite topic, idols. Because none of us have idols, do we? None of us deal with issues in our life. And of course, we all do. And the last couple of weeks, we've been walking through this because about four months ago, the Lord gave us a word for our church, a picture of all of us dealing with what an Old Testament symbol of, of kind of idol worship was a thing called an Astro pole. And there was this picture given of, of, of the Astro poles across our valley and God coming by the power of spirit and washing those away. And kind of knowing that, that God was saying, listen, at least for Antioch, we're, we're going to hit this thing called idols and go after it. Because whether we know it or not, when we try to advance in following Jesus, we keep hitting a wall, not realizing that that wall, it comes in the form of an idol. And just kind of a re quick recap, remember, an idol isn't always something that's horrific and bad and evil. An idol many times is something good that becomes an ultimate thing in our life and then takes the place of God and gets us into trouble. In fact, this morning, what we're going to talk about is along those lines. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 27 to chapter 30. Um, we're going to cover a lot of ground in those chapters, so you probably want to take a look at the screens with some of the passages that we'll be reading from. But, but this morning, just to keep this in mind, one of the things that, that we're going to talk about this morning that, that sometimes you think, is this an idol? It's the concept of love. And love actually is a good thing. We know that God is love, and the Bible talks about love, and we sing about love. But you know that love can be a good thing that becomes an ultimate thing? Because what love deep down inside of each one of us desires is there's this desire in us. That we want to be wanted. We want to be accepted. We want to be received by other people. We need to be validated by other people. And that comes in this exchange or this thing called love. And so what happens when we, we make that the ultimate goal is the love and the acceptance of other people around us, whether it be our boyfriend or girlfriend or a spouse or a parent or a coworker or a boss, and that relationship trumps our relationship with God, then what happens is love is that good thing that becomes the ultimate thing that actually wreaks distraction and destruction in our lives. So I want to talk about that this morning because we, we live in a culture that this is how we, what we value, that, that love is the ultimate goal. In fact, anybody remember the movie Jerry Maguire, the famous line that came out of Jerry Maguire when, you know, the, 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 the character played by Tom Cruise says to the character played by Renee Zellweger, you complete me. Anybody remember that line? It was like, oh, how romantic. No, how dysfunctional, actually, <laughs> that he would put on her this weight of love that without you, I'm an incomplete person, but now with you, I'm somehow complete. That's crushing for another human being to have that placed on them. And in reality, for you and I to experience completeness, we can only rely on God for that kind of fulfillment in our life and not another human being. Now, hear me, uh, just kind of a, a, a disclaimer before we start. Uh, I am not against romance, and I am not against fairy tales, and I'm not against happily ever after, because after the end of this message, you're going to think, wow, Pastor John really needs to lighten up. <laughs> but, but what I am, and the reality is that sometimes we romanticize love in such a way that we lose sight of what it really is and where it should be directed to. And so this morning, we're going to look at uh, a story, as I mentioned, in Genesis chapter 27 through uh, chapter 30, and I'm going to kind of give you a quick overview of it. Uh, one of the, 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 the blessings and the cursings of reading through the stories of the scriptures is you realize you get great people of faith and great heroes of the faith, but then you also have stories of real human beings and real struggles that we learn from because they struggle with the issues that we struggle with. And so this morning we're going to talk about a guy named Jacob. And Jacob, obviously, uh, was one of the, the kind of the forefathers of Judaism and, and then God's people. And so kind of picking up his story and uh, kind of give you an overview. So before we kind of jump into what's there and kind of you'll see some things that we're, we're going to talk about this morning. So Jacob, obviously, we know he, was, he had a brother named Esau. And they were born into a family with a, his dad's name was Isaac and his mom's name was Rebekah. 
And right off the, out of the bat, as, as these two boys grow older, the older one obviously is the one of privilege in a Jewish household, and he's trying to do what he's supposed to do. And, and through circumstances, um, the, the younger, Jacob, does what? He steals not only the blessing, but he steals the birthright of his brother through some deceptive means orchestrated by his mom. Just sounds like a great Hollywood script, doesn't it? And so because of that, what happens is these two brothers separate, and ultimately Jacob goes his own way and ends up finding somebody that he's fallen in love with. Her name is Rachel. She's beautiful. She's gorgeous. And, and so she, he goes to, to Rachel's dad and says, listen, I want to have her as my wife. And he said, great, give me seven years of work, and then you can have her. And we think, wow, romantic. And so seven years, he works hard. But Laban, who is, is Rachel's dad, has another daughter, and her her name is Leah, and she's not so good-looking, and she's not so popular, and he knows he's got to marry her off. So instead of giving him Rachel on the wedding night, he gives Leah, and somehow, I don't know how Jacob did it, but he must have been blind. He sleeps with the wrong woman, and he ends up married, being married to Leah. And then Laban says, oh, another seven years. And you think, oh, how romantic. Fourteen years of forced labor. You think, oh, man, he really loved her. Eh, yeah, but we'll talk about the dysfunction in Jacob because it's in all of us. And so after that, and then what ends up happening is you get this rivalry between Leah and Rachel, the two sisters, and what they go through, and their own dysfunction, the way they look at Jacob, is the way that sometimes we treat relationships. And so this is kind of the overview. This is the dysfunctional context that we, we kind of find ourselves in. And this is why the Bible records these stories, because the Bible records true human experience so that we can learn from them. And so this morning we're going to take a look at this. But I want to start with, out of this story, we'll, we'll chime in here. There's, there's four things that love, where love actually brings bondage. You think, oh, love it can't be bad. Love is, is a good thing that becomes an ultimate thing that actually can create bondage in our, life when we, in our life when we view it incorrectly. So the first thing is this. Love brings bondage when we refuse to face our past. In other words, we refuse to go back into the way that we were raised and the way that we were influenced in our life and come to grips with the fact that there are things that were either done to us or by us that shaped how we think and how we approach people. So this is true for, for Jacob's experience and what's happened to him. So in Genesis chapter 27, verse 13, there's an interesting thing that's uh, uh, unfolding here. So this is where, where his mom is orchestrating for him how to basically steal the, the blessing and the birthright that belongs to his older brother Esau. And his mom, is, is we can use the term, she was slightly overbearing. Rebecca was slightly overbearing with, with Jacob to the point she was telling him what he's supposed to do. And so she has basically said, this is how we're going to set this up. You're going to impersonate your brother. I'm going to make your dad's favorite meal, and you're going to go in there, and you're going to get the blessing and the birthright, and you're going to be the chosen son. And listen to what she says to him. This is verse uh, 13 of Genesis 27. It says, his mother said to him, let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go and bring them to me. All the ingredients, all the things he's supposed to bring. If you're a son and your mom says to you, obey me and do what I'm telling you to do. As a son growing up and you're impressionable, what is, what is your motivation with your mom? Guys, think about this. You want, you want to please your mom. In fact, the majority of us, when, especially when we're young, we want to please our parents. And when a parent comes along and says, obey what I'm saying, even though what she's saying to do is actually deceptive, and he's in this position, if Jacob doesn't do what his mom says, he's going to be on the outs with his mom. So what does he do? He does it. This is, this, don't, don't over-spiritualize the story here, because this is what's going on. This is a mom putting pressure on her son to do what she wants him to do, and what does he do? He caves in and he does it, and he follows her lead. 
So deep in, in Jacob's history is what? Is this, this dysfunction with his own mom that I have to do things to please people because if I don't, I won't be accepted, I will be rejected, so I better do what my mom says. Can you think back in your own history if something happened in your past where you were in a position where you were forced or asked to do something and you knew if you didn't, what the result would be would be rejection. So what did you do? You did it. Whether it was right or wrong, you did it. Why? Because you felt like if I didn't do what this person asked me to do, especially if it's a person in authority, especially if it's a parent. Now, I'm not, I'm not bagging on all parents today, okay? But I am saying you and I have to face the reality of our past. I have one of the healthiest families I know of, and I know that my parents would admit to They're not perfect. There were times where I know things that were done even with great intention but didn't come across the way they should. And all of us have something of that in us where we go back to our parents or mom or a dad and we felt like if I could only get their acceptance, if they only would love me, if they only would receive me and they wouldn't reject me, then my life would be happy. One of my favorite movies is the movie Inception because it really makes you think. If you haven't seen it, I won't give you the whole st- the plot. But basically at, at the core of that whole storyline is the ability to influence people by influencing their dreams. And if you can influence their dreams, you can shape the way they make decisions in life. And so the whole core of what, what goes on in that movie is basically they identify a guy who needs to make a decision in business that is related to his dad. And they realize that his one goal in life is to please his dad. So they embed something in his dream that makes his, that he make him think that his dad has accepted him and loved him. So he'll make a certain decision. The whole thing was based on, this guy's whole outlook on life was based on one relationship. If I can make my dad happy, then I will find what? Satisfaction. I'll be complete. If only I can please my dad. And some of us have grown up with that. If only I could please my parents. And it's not that you and I do things intentionally to displease them, but we live with this, oh, if only they would love me. Now, is it wrong for us to want that? No, but it's wrong when that becomes the goal of our lives, that everything that you do today, whether you know it or not, is motivated by the fact that mom or dad didn't show the acceptance that you thought you needed when you were growing up, and now you're still trying to prove yourself, even though you're 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years old, you're still trying. Don't worry, we'll get to good news, okay? But there's some bad news, more bad news first. Second reality of what when love brings bondage is when we let affection become obsession. So when we have an affection for somebody and then suddenly that there's something that switches and now we're driven and controlled by wanting somebody else's approval or acceptance in our life. So listen to what's going on in Genesis, going down to chapter 29, verses 16 and 20 as we move forward in the story. So we're talking about now, we're talking about Rachel and we're talking about Leah and what's going on in their lives. So it says, now Laban, who was their dad, had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. And Laban said, it is better that I give her to you now that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to have uh, but a a few days because of the love he had for her. So this is, it is romantic, and it's really cool that a guy would carry on for seven years to be with a woman. But there's a problem here. Because what happens is we see as the story goes on, even after seven years when he's tricked and he ends up with Leah, he's still obsessed with Rachel to the point where he'll give seven more years of his life, 14 years of his life for a woman. And if you read through the story, we don't have time, a woman that now when he has two sisters living under one roof and he's married to both of them, that is trouble, major trouble. 
It only gets worse as the story unfolds. But what has happened in Jacob is that he is so consumed with Rachel and her beauty that he will do anything. He's become blind to reality. That he would give seven years and then seven more years. Why? Just so he could be with this, with this woman. Now, that's great and it's romantic, but the problem is he is defining his life by a human being. He's made his commitment to Rachel bigger than any other commitment in his life. He's put the weight on this woman that if once he finally marries her and he's with her, then suddenly he will be complete and he will be fulfilled. And if you read through the story, it doesn't end well because he's put on a human being what only God can handle. And if you and I will for a moment just think about our own lives and think about our behavior, think about our identity, think about who we are, and think about when, when that one person walks into the room or walks into your life, how you change. Think about this for a moment. When somebody who you desire to be accepted by walks into the room, you change. And you start acting different. You start talking different. You start being a different person. Why do we do that? We can be totally ourselves in a room full of people, but that one person walks in and they catch our eye and we want them to notice us, to accept us. And so we start acting like a stranger. We start acting different. We stop being who we are. Why? Because that person has now literally trumped every other person in the room in our life, and I have to get their acceptance. What is that? That's obsession. That we would change who we are for validation from a human being. Think about that in your life. It could be your boss. It could be you're in a, a, a tough work environment, and you want to advance, and you want to get a promotion, and every time your boss walks into your office or onto the floor, you change. Because you want their acceptance. But what you're not realizing is you're putting everything of who you are into that one person. That if they love me and accept me, then I'll be happy. But when you finally get what you think that you're wanting, it ends up not being what you thought it was. Because that human being cannot fulfill you. That human being cannot make you what God can create in you. Then there's a third reality, what love brings when it becomes bondage, is that we think the end justifies the means. So going on in the, in the story, this is interesting. So Leah's in, in a difficult spot. She's with Jacob. Jacob doesn't love her. Finally, Rachel gets in, and so then there's two wives, and so Leah knows that she's not the favorite flavor. She's, not, she's the outcast. And so what happens is she tries to come up with a strategy that's going to change things. She thinks, if I do this, then I'm going to win Jacob over. So listen to what happens in chapter 29, verses 31 to 34. It says, when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And, and this is a good thing, but then watch, watch what she does with it. Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called him Reuben, for she said, Because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. It doesn't say that's why God gave her another son. Verse 33, she conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she's also called him, or she called him Simeon. And again she conceived and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will be attracted to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, his name will be called Levi. What is she doing? She's having more babies, so she'll get Jacob's attention because she wants him to accept her and love her, and he's not going. It doesn't matter how many babies she has. Think about that. So she has the first child, Reuben, which, by the way, Reuben's name sounds like the word son in Hebrew, which is the ultimate goal of the Hebrew wife, is to give their husband a son. So she thinks, I've arrived. I've given him a son. 
Child number two, Simeon, which sounds like the word heard in Hebrew, that God had heard her cries, uh, that she, she wanted Jacob's affection, so she had God on her side now. And then the third child, Levi, which sounds like the word attached in Hebrew, so that Jacob would finally, what, attach himself. It doesn't work, though. It doesn't matter how many boys she has. It's still not going to work. Why? Because she's putting on Jacob what only God can carry in her life. And she's motivated by this. How many times in our life are we just driven, and it doesn't matter at all costs, to try to earn some kind of acceptance or status or something so that people will look at us and like us and accept us and love us. And so we try, and our life becomes exhausting. There's a great quote from, from believe it or not, the great theologian Madonna. And she was, uh, she was, uh, was interviewed by Vogue magazine, and actually Tim Keller, who writes a book, The, the Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, quotes her, in, this, in his book, and this is what he says. This is about her career and about her drive. She says, my drive in life comes from a fear of being mediocre. That is always pushing me. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as being a special human being, but then I feel I'm still mediocre, uninteresting, unless I do something else, because even though I have become somebody, I still have to prove that I am somebody. My struggle has never ended, and I guess it never will. You don't have to raise your hand, but can you relate? The struggle that we have to always do enough to be accepted and to be loved, and then when we find out it's not enough, we have to do more, and it's just this cycle in our life, and we never, ever get to where we're supposed to be because we're putting on people what only God can carry, and then there's a final reality of what love brings when it brings bondage, and that is we see others as a threat. So if you get to Genesis chapter 30, what happens is we're not going to read through the whole story. But basically, Leah and Rachel get into a baby-producing battle. You have one, I'm going to have one. And we're just going to keep one-upping each other until finally we're going to see who wins. And what happens is two sisters who most likely got along before Jacob came into the scene now can't stand each other. And now they're rivals. And now they're threats to each other. And now there's division amongst them. And now they look at each other with contempt. Why? Because they are winning the affection or battling for the affection of the one man that's going to make all of their wildest dreams come true. And by the way, if you read through Jacob's life, Jacob wasn't that great of a guy. But God was faithful. And this is the guy they're, they're putting all in for because they think somehow. But now what do they start to turn on people? See, when you and I are motivated to be accepted and loved by another person, we will violate other relationships in the process. We will value this person, but not value this person because this person is more important to us. That's what they were doing. They were in this battle back and forth. I told you a couple weeks ago about how, how there's a, there, a girl in college who kind of started stalking me, and she made this announcement to Kim after Kim and I went on our first date, and, and she walked into Kim's dorm room and made the announcement that God told her that she was going to marry me and that Kim should basically back off. Um, and which, by the way, I didn't really tell you the other side of the story. And this is really, at first, I was a little offended. And then secondly, I thought, ooh, I like this girl. Because I never told you what Kim, how Kim responded to, to her. This is what Kim said to her when she came in and said, listen, I heard you went on a date with John Amstutz. That's great, but you just need to know you need to back off because God told me I'm going to marry him. And this was Kim's response. Have Adam. That's all she said. She's like, go for it. And when I heard that, I'm like, oh, wow, she's not fighting for me. Where's the... Where's the rivalry, right? Where's, no, I, and I thought, wow, there's something about her. Seriously, that she, she doesn't look to me like she needs me. She's actually independent. She's strong. And that made me even more attracted to her. What I loved about Kim is Kim didn't need me to complete her. She already had Jesus to do that for her. 
And if you and I understand that, in fact, some of us who have yet to be married and want to be married, that may be the very thing that you struggle with, is that you so desperately want to be married that you've made the person you're trying to marry the ultimate goal when Jesus is the ultimate goal. And if you would allow him to invade all of who you are, you might become the person he created you to be, and you actually might be more attracted to the person that you're pursuing because you don't need them to complete you because Jesus already has. That's the freedom that Jesus brings when we understand the concept of love. So now here's the good news. So love actually can bring satisfaction in its proper context. Three things that I want to highlight. The first is this, that love brings satisfaction when we discover God's love. God is the definition of love. He says that of himself in the scriptures, that, that he defines himself as love. So in discovering his love means that we know that we can be complete in him. So listen to, this is, and you keep going on the story, listen to what happens to Leah. So she gets into the battle with her sister. She knows she can't win. But what happens is that when she's conceiving, she comes to this realization that all of us have to come to in our life. It says in verse 35 of Genesis 29, it says she conceived again and bore a son and said, this time... I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called him, his name Judah. And then what? She ceased bearing. What is she saying? She says this time, what is, all the other times is what? This is, he's going to attach himself to me. He's going to give me his attention. I'm going to get the affection of Jacob. And finally, she comes to the realization, it doesn't matter what she does. She's not going to get Jacob. So what she realizes, this time, I'm going to praise the Lord. I'm going to thank the Lord for his son. I'm not going to use him to leverage him so that I can get Jacob's attention. She came to this realization that if she had God, that's all she needed. She didn't need to keep going after a man to somehow complete her. And for us, we have to come to this understanding in our lives. And I know it sounds cliche, but all we truly need is Jesus. And so many times, oh, yeah, yeah, that's nice. You don't know what I've gone through in life, and you know the struggles I have. No, I don't, but I know Jesus. And I was praying this morning, the Lord reminded me, he said, listen, make sure you say today, I'm not a substitute. Everything else in our life are substitutes for God. Jesus is the real thing. He's the one person because of his death and his resurrection and his perfection and his eternal love for you and I. He's the only one that can come into our lives and give us a sense of wholeness and completeness, completeness that no other person could ever come close to doing. But we certainly try. We try to put that on other people. What happens when you finally come to grips with this peace that you're fully loved and accepted by God and it doesn't matter what anybody else says or thinks about you? What does life look like? I'll tell you what it looks like. Your anxiety disappears. Your striving ceases. You don't have to try hard anymore because you get to finally just be yourself. It's interesting since Kim and I have been fostering, it'll be, it'll be coming up in three and a half, almost four years. We've had a lot of babies come through our house, and, and I've gotten this amazing education. We've gone through training to understand the psychology behind how children respond to trauma and anxiety in their life. Most people think, ah, oh, babies are babies. Nothing really impacts them. And I have seen firsthand of the children that would come into our household, even the ones that we get right out of the hospital, how trauma and anxiety affect their behavior, even at two or three or four months old. It's crazy. And I've also seen what, what, what people don't understand about babies, and this is not trying to educate, but like when, when Kim will be here second service and we have Liliana right now as our baby, and people walk up to a baby and they're either standoffish or they're like have to engage and they have to tickle them and have to make funny sounds and everything. For a baby who's gone through trauma, that's the worst thing you can do. Because you're a stranger invading their space and you're like, uh-oh. And one of the things I've noticed that Liliana's done quite a bit because she's gone through a lot in her little life is she will look at me or Kim when some stranger comes up. You know what she's doing at six months old? 
She's saying, are they okay? Are we safe? And if she sees from us that we feel calm, I can see it on her face. She completely calms down. And she's only six months old. How in the world does that work? It's because she knows that mom and dad love her and will do anything for her, and she can trust us. I've seen it in every child we've had in our house. That's one of the things where our commitment is helping children to learn how to attach in a healthy way that they know that they are fully loved and accepted so they can be who they are. Think about on a much bigger scale, the God of the universe who never has a bad day, who never sins, who's never at fault, who never does anything wrong, always loves and always accepts you. Think about that. When you go through your daily life and you have anxiety about, oh, if, this, if I don't get this promotion or if this person doesn't like me and this doesn't happen for me and God says, whoa, 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 whoa. None of that's going to answer to who you need to be and who you're, how you're going to find completeness and satisfaction. And you come back to like, oh, okay, I don't have to try anymore. I don't have to strive anymore. I don't have to make it happen. Why? Because I know that Jesus accepts me and loves me, not because I earned it, what? but because he gave his life for me. He died for me so that I could experience that. Second reality when love brings satisfaction is when we experience God's love. Not only do we discover it, but we actually get to experience it. How do you know that God loves you? Jesus. He is the evidence of the depth of God's love. We all can relate to whether you've known it from as a child or you've seen it on TV, the most famous verse in all of the Bible, for God so loved the world. And what did he do with his love? He gave. What did he give? He gave Jesus. And Jesus is the demonstration of what God's love looks like for us. What does God's love look like for us? Listen to what Paul said in Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. He says, For while we were still weak, I mean, in a sense, powerless to do anything on our own. We couldn't earn God's favor. We couldn't make it happen. It says, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's us. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though uh, perhaps for a good person, one may dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we couldn't do anything to gain God's love and affection, and acceptance in our life, what does God do? He allows his son to die so that he can say to you and I, not because your ability, not because your righteousness, not because you earned anything, but simply because I love you, I have taken away all of your sins so that you can stand before me, not as a sinner, but as a righteous person because what Jesus has done, so I can say to you with full confidence, you are fully accepted. Wow. But wait, 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 wait. I'm not good enough, God. I know that. He'll say, I know that. I know you better than you know yourself. Or you start to think, well, I have to really kind of keep this up because if I mess up one time, even though I know Jesus died on the cross and then it's going to be the party's over, it's the end of the road. No, 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 Jesus' sacrifice covers all of our sin and failure. The process of us coming to realize what our sin and failure is is the process of confession and repentance where we say, I don't want to do that anymore because that's not what God created me to do. And when we begin to live that on our lives, everything changes for us. Let me ask you a question. Now, this for some, you're like, ah, oh, this is really basic. I got this. But, man, I've known Jesus since I was six years old, and I still have to ask myself this question. Do I know Jesus? Do I really know Jesus? Or do I know of him? What Mitch means, I've read the Bible. I've gone to church. I know lots of verses. I know lots of information. I can tell the Christmas story. I can tell the, the death and resurrection of Jesus. I can tell all that. You know a lot of information about Jesus, but do you actually know him? Because knowing him means you just don't know about him. You actually know him in a personal way. 
We know of him. We know about him, but do we actually know him? Which means the God of the universe is not some distant figure that came and lived 35 years or so, died and rose from the dead, went back to heaven and left us alone. He's actively present through his spirit in our lives every single day. And that means that we can experience who he is. That he speaks to us through our hearts and on our minds and through the scriptures. That he moves within our emotions. That we feel him within our heart. We feel the conviction that he brings in us. We feel the acceptance and the love. If we feel nothing, then we're pitied. Like, oh, isn't that emotionalism? No, 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 no. If God is alive in Jesus, then we better feel something. Otherwise, there's a sign that our hearts have become hardened to him. Because what testifies more than the information about creation or science that proves Christianity or arguments of apologetics is when the human heart feels the presence of God, is convicted, and is transformed to be free from their sin. Nothing is more powerful than that. That's the love of God operating within us. That's God's presence in us. And all of us have to ask the question, do I really know him? Or do I know a version of him that I've created in my own mind that doesn't do justice to who he really is? That's why I've mentioned so many times, go back to the Gospels and read them over and over and over again. Every time I read through the Gospels, I always am confronted with, wow, I forgot about that. I forgot about that part of Jesus. And ooh, that, that Jesus that's in the Bible doesn't jive with the Jesus that I've come up with in my own mind and the way I'm living things out. And I have to come back to that. Why? Because our minds play tricks on us. And I think the enemy tries to cause us to, what, question God and be confused about who he is. And then the final reality before we're going to head towards communion and the worship team will join us here in just a moment. That love brings satisfaction when we actually live in God's love. We live with this reality, not just up here in our head, but we live with the truth that God actually does love us and does accept us. And therefore, I don't need another experience or another human being in order for me to feel justified and feel complete because God has made that clear. Listen to what John wrote in 1 John 3 verse 1. He says this, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. That's who we are. That's who we are. Now, you might look at your life and think, I don't feel like a child of God. I don't act like a child of God. But there's an identity that God says, you are a child of God. If you've embraced Jesus, now you are what? You are co-heirs with him, which means that you are his brother, his sister. You are in the family of God now through Jesus. That means that you belong. That means that you're accepted. That means that you're in. Not because you earned your way in, but because God says, I choose to accept you in because what my son has done for you. Why is this so hard for us to embrace? I, I was thinking about my life this week, and, and like I said, I grew up in a relatively healthy context in my family. But I know one of the things that we, we grow up in, all of us, whether we can articulate it or not, we grow up in a culture and a society that says you have to earn everything. Now, there's privilege and there's inheritance and all those things, but there's always something inside of us that says, I've got to do better, I've got to earn, so I've got to work harder, so I've got to do whatever, fill in the blanks. It starts when you're really young and you realize that mom and dad give you more kudos for better behavior, which is a good thing. It's good parenting. But what we interpret it as as a child is, I have to do better so mom and dad love me more. Why? I have to earn their affection. Now, as you get older, and, you, and I know in my family, I started to realize as I got older, what I started to realize is my mom and dad would accept me unconditionally because I did some stupid stuff when I was young, and I was shocked at the way they reacted to me. I thought, how in the world can you have that much patience? How in the world can you have that much mercy? 
and I started to realize that. But, but it starts when you're young, and, and then when we get into school, what happens? The grading system. You got to earn A's, right? You got to work harder. If you don't, then you're not going to get into a good school. And if you can't get into a good school, you're not going to get a good job. And if you don't get a good job, you're not going to earn enough money. If you don't earn enough money, you're not going to marry the right person, and you're going to be miserable, right? Didn't I just describe the, the American nightmare that we all live, right? But we earn, we earn, we earn, and then you start playing youth sports. You know, it was great when everybody got a trophy for participation, but everybody knew who, went, who wins, right? So what are we told? The winners are famous. The losers are forgotten. So what do you do? You earn, you earn, you earn. And eventually, you're going to find a place where you can't earn. You're not going to be good enough. There's going to be somebody better. You're going to fall short. And at the end of that cycle, where are you going to be? You're going to be devastated by because you realize you're human. And in your humanity, you can never earn what's going to make you complete and satisfied in your life. That's called mercy and grace. And that's what God gives to his people. And if you and I were to understand in God's context, I can't earn being part of the family. I just have to accept that's the reality that God has made true in my life. I have to accept that. You can earn all you want. Earning is not bad. Working hard is not bad. But if that is the goal of your life is to earn something that makes you feel justified and satisfied in life, you will never earn enough. Until you're at peace with Jesus and realize that even if you fail on your worst day, he still loves you. He still accepts you. We were praying a couple weeks ago before one of the services, and one of the things that as I was, we were praying, and I don't think it was just for that particular service, was, was just this, this feeling. It's a feeling that I used to have when I was growing up, and my dad would travel for, for ministry and be involved in different things. Um, I love both my parents, but my dad was always the stabilizer. So even if I wasn't hanging out with my dad, if he was home, I felt better. Anybody relate to that? There was like a safety in our household. Okay, dad's home, so everything's okay. And so when he would leave, I remember feeling severe anxiety. Even though my mom did a great job, even when he was gone, but I always felt like there was always this, like, if it was for a weekend or for a week, it was like, okay, I just have to count the days, I have to hang on. And then finally, when my dad would drive back in up the driveway to our house, and I would see him coming up, it was like, oh, he's home, okay. Even though I would give him a hug and I would go off and do whatever I was going to do, I wouldn't hang out with him. He's here. He's home. And if, if dad's home, then everything's okay. I don't have to worry anymore. And, I, and I was, as I was praying a few weeks ago, God reminded me of that emotion that I felt and reminded me even more importantly that for every person who walked into our building that day, and I feel that's true for every, that when people walk in, there would be this, oh, he's here. Which doesn't mean he lives at 4555 Runway. He's here in your home. He's here in your car. He's here in your job. He's here. He's present. He accepts you. He loves you. Relax. God loves you. And if we actually let that settle in, man, the anxiety disappears. Why? Because I don't have to earn that. And I can follow Jesus, and on my worst day, he's still going to love me. He's still going to accept me. I'm going to ask the, the worship team if they would come and, and join me. We're going to go into a time of communion together. And in preparation for that, just logistically, we have the station set up around the, the auditorium here. And so in just a moment when I pray and We'll dismiss, and you can head to one of the stations to receive those elements. And what, what we're doing in these moments is it's important because last month I, I, we spent the whole kind of Sunday talking about what is communion, what does it mean, and, and realizing the significance. And this is probably one of the most important things that we can do is to be reminded of something that you and I don't necessarily cognitively forget, 
I think none of us like forget that Jesus died on the cross, but you know what we do forget? The reality of what that means to our, for our lives. That the God of the universe loved human beings so much that he gave the ultimate gift in his son to die for what? My brokenness and my sin. And this is, the Bible is very clear on this. It's a whole other teaching. But this is, this just makes no sense. Jesus says to us, if you will receive me, if you will follow me, here's the deal. I will take all of your sin, all of your brokenness, everything from your past, everything in your present, and everything in your future, and I will take it on myself. I will become your sin and pay for it with my life. And then here's the the kicker. Not only are you now absent from sin because now you're forgiven, but then Jesus says, here's the deal. I'll take your sin so you're no longer a sinner, and then I will give you in return my perfection and my righteousness. So when you follow Jesus, when God looks down at your life, he knows you sin, but that's not what represents you anymore. What represents you is the righteousness of Jesus that he looks at and says, you're right, because all of your sin has been covered you've been now and this is the most important thing and this is what I want us to see in fact just close your eyes right now in the next few moments when you make your way to the tables these symbols the bread and the cup that remind us that Jesus gave everything for us to die for our sin to rise from the dead to have power over sin and death the the two biggest enemies of humanity that when you come to the table today I want you to see something I want you to see what God sees when he looks at you There is a word that God sees every time he looks at you if you have given your life to Jesus, if you have surrendered yourself, if you have looked to Jesus to be the one who completes and satisfies your soul. When you've turned over yourself and your life and your sin and everything to God and you've given yourself to Jesus and then Jesus has given you his righteousness, when you come to the place of remembering his sacrifice and God looks down on you today, you know what word he sees stamped across your heart? It's the word accepted. And some of you need to hear this today. You are accepted by God. But even right now, some might, oh, no, I can't be. I mean, I know what I did last night. I know what goes on in my mind. I know the secret corners of my life that nobody knows about. And if God really knew, then there's no way he could accept me. If you turn those areas over to him, Jesus says, I'll pay for those and then I'll give you my righteousness. Some of you have sold your life out for love. You have given everything of who you are to other human beings, hoping, just hoping, that if you'll give them your affection, you'll give them your time, you'll give them your body, that somehow... Something will happen that will cause you to feel validated, cause you to feel important, cause you to feel accepted, and you keep trying and you keep trying, and it never turns out. For a moment, there's this moment of feeling something, but something happens in the next moment where that relationship is not what you thought it was going to be and you're not getting the acceptance and affection that you thought you were going to get for giving all of who you are and you find yourself completely empty and broken in a sense you feel used. So in a moment as we receive these elements, I want you to be reminded of something. God never uses people. God draws people to himself through Jesus. 
so that you and I can understand the definition of who love is. God is love, and His love is perfect, and His love is the ultimate love. And so I'm going to ask you this morning as, as I pray, and you will come to the tables in a moment, that you would offer all of yourself to Jesus so that you will know Him. You will confess the sin that you know is the, the, the one thing that keeps you from getting to Him. You would even be willing to go as far as saying, I know this relationship is no longer healthy because it's something that I'm looking to be the answer to my needs and it's not meeting those needs. And God may say, either you need to leave that relationship or you need to change, especially with if you've placed on your spouse that they have to fulfill all of your needs. You need to repent to your spouse and say, I am sorry. I am sorry for making you God in my life and now I want God to be my God. And then change the way you relate to your spouse. So Lord Jesus, you know what it is for each one of us to deal with the things we're dealing with. Lord, you've given us this perfect and beautiful thing called love and you want it to be something that completes and satisfies us. But Lord, we know that only comes from you. And so right now, Lord, I pray as we receive the elements to remember, Jesus, what you did for us, that once again, we would be reminded we are fully accepted. We are fully loved. We are children of God. Accepted by you today as we turn our lives over to you. So Lord Jesus, would you move past our heads to our hearts and our souls this morning so that we would truly live and experience and know the fullness of your love in us. In Jesus' name.